Hello and welcome to show 13 of the Low Tox Life podcast. I am Alex Stewart, your host, and today I am bringing you one of my favorite health professionals, someone who I have interviewed in one of my e-courses, Real Food Rockstars, uh, all about preventative heart health. And uh, it is Dr. Stephen Sinatra. He is a multi-award winning author. He has been practicing cardiology for over four decades. He is also trained in nutritional science and psychotherapy and is a practitioner who is so inspiring on so many levels because he believes and recognized early in his career that there is no one way to do things, that the world is not black and white and has really brought a lot of spiritual wisdom into his practice as well as scientific wisdom. And if you have been someone who has been worried about the health of your heart, if you've had to have difficult conversations where you don't feel empowered to be a part of that conversation because of perhaps a lack of knowledge, then by the end of today's chat, you will definitely feel like you have more tools in your kit to have confident discussions around your heart and any kind of treatments that may be recommended to you along the way. Now, before I hook into that chat, and I will do in just a minute's time, I just wanted to remind you for the second week now, we have that brilliant offer of 25% off with the Rose Hip Plus range. Now, this is a beautiful organic, certified organic uh, by Australian standards, which is a very strict certification range, and uh, they are fragrance-free, so it's extremely wonderful for anyone who experiences sensitivities around fragrance, natural or otherwise in their skincare products. Gorgeous. And I thought what I would do is also pop in some of my favorite ways to use rosehip oil. So in today's show notes, you can head over there and I have popped my favorite ways to use rosehip oil, concentrating on pure rosehip oil in the little dropper that they have, which is just gorgeous, as well as the super groovy roll-on, which I find fabulous for travel. So if you want to check out my five favorite ways to use rosehip oil and and the five best reasons to use it for skin health, then head to today's show notes. So now I'm going to get us back into today's incredible chat with Dr. Stephen Sinatra. I hope you enjoy it just as much as I did. I'll speak to you after. And I'm so happy to introduce to you Dr. Stephen Sinatra. How are you? I'm really good, Alex. It's a, it's a bright, sunny morning here in Essex, Connecticut. So I don't know what it's like in Australia right now. <laughs> it's a cold winter's evening here in Sydney, Australia. And I've just come home from seeing a production of Singing in the Rain. I don't know if you're a fan of musical theatre. I'm a huge... Oh, yeah, I've seen that years ago, yeah. Yeah, so we had a great night at the theatre tonight. And I thought, nope, got to get my cab, got to get home and interview Stephen. <laughs> So um, there is so much that I want to talk to you about. And I guess today what we would love to achieve for the people out there listening is having more literacy around heart health and having more um, empowerment when it comes to having a discussion with our doctors. And to do that, I would love firstly to start to just have you sharing a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a doctor yourself. Oh, that's a long story, Alex, but I'll, I'll try to be brief. I mean, I grew up in a family where my mother was a brittle diabetic. Uh, her grandmother was, actually, my grandmother was diabetic, and my mother, uh, she developed glaucoma when she was 38, and the doctors treated her with huge doses of corticosteroids, and um, it sort of wiped out her pancreas. But I remember when I was 10 years old, 
Uh, my mother was developing diabetic shock and I had to give her insulin and I had to call an ambulance once. And, and uh, I realized when I was about 10 or 11 years old that, uh, uh, you know, I had to attend to my mother. Yeah. And then I said, you know, when I got to be, you know, into my early teens, I realized, well, maybe I should become a doctor. And that's how it all started. Oh, well, there you go. I was, and- was taking care of my mother uh, as, as a brittle diabetic. And I said, geez, maybe I should become a doctor. So that's the that's the path I chose. So I, I, I think it was all as, as a result of my mother's illness that really set me up. And isn't it interesting how many health professionals, when you ask them, what you know what spurred on your career in health i know as a a, a health researcher and educator uh, for me it was my own illness that made me start thinking outside of the box and thinking how can i get a better result for for myself and then of course whatever happens afterwards happens afterwards but why did you choose the heart then why did you become a cardiologist that's another interesting story i uh I was an athlete in high school and in college, and uh, I actually got into college on a wrestling scholarship. And uh, it was amazing. I I was talking to my high school coach, and uh, he asked me what I was going to do in my life. It was in my junior, senior year. And I said, I think I want to be a teacher and a coach. And he said to me, he goes, why don't you become a doctor? And uh, he sort of empowered me at that point. And I said, you, do you really think I could make it? He goes, absolutely. You know, with your discipline in athletics, it, that's nothing compared to the discipline in, in you know, in, in studying, et cetera, et cetera. So my coach sort of empowered me. And then with my with my mother's situation, I said, OK, you know, because I, I leaned away from becoming a doctor in my early teens. And then I and in my middle teens, I I thought I could do it. And then all of a sudden I did it. And uh I, I applied to college. I got into college on a wrestling scholarship. And uh, after two years of being at college, I declared myself as a pre-med. And I had the grades to do it. And everything fell together. It was it was marvelous the way it came together. And uh, I'm, I'm so happy it ended that way. It was meant to be, clearly, with everything you've achieved since. You know, when we talk about health revelations from heaven and earth, I realized that my whole life has been programmed. I never believed that until I met Tommy. Ah, well, we will definitely have to get you back to talk about that book because I'm excited about that book too. So one of the things that I absolutely love about your career is that you have been a man of science who has also been prepared to admit that the science that you thought you believed was right was wrong. And you used to even speak, if I'm not mistaken, for uh, certain statin makers, uh, and then you stopped. Can you tell us about those years where you really believed um, that, that, that statins were the be-all, end-all to cure all heart disease and, and how you were able to transition and what made you transition to believing otherwise and that there was a much bigger picture we needed to look at? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great uh, story in itself because when I was chief of cardiology at my institution and I was chief there for about nine years, in the middle of that time, I really believed in the cholesterol theory of heart disease. I mean, I came out of a fellowship in cardiology. I was doing coronary angiograms. However, you know, a lot of those coronary angiograms that I was doing in people with cholesterols of 160, 170, I found out they were riddled with heart disease. And then some angiograms with people with cholesterols of 250 to 300, they had no heart disease. 
And uh, I, started, I started to think for myself, and I said, you know, this theory doesn't really fit. And then in 1982, there was an article on coenzyme Q10 written by Indian researchers. Uh, no, actually, it was 92. It was 1992. And um, these Indian researchers from India reported that statin drugs inhibited the production of coenzyme Q10. And I started using coenzyme Q10 in 1982. So I was using coenzyme Q10 for at least 10 years. And when I read the journal article, Alex, I realized I made a mistake. In other words, I'm saying to myself, oh, my God, here I am, a huge believer in coenzyme Q10. And now I'm using drugs that inhibit the production of it. Something's got to be wrong here. So it was in 1992 when I made the switch that I was going to use statin drugs with caution because I, I, I got the idea or the enlightenment that statin drugs could literally knock out a vital vitamin, coenzyme Q10, that is extraordinarily valuable for the health of the heart. So... Back then, I actually thought about it, and uh, it was an amazing discovery, and I'm so glad that at that time, I became a cardiologist in recovery. A cardiologist in recovery, a born-again cardiologist. Yes, a born-again cardiologist. (laughs) Um, So can you explain, just for the people who don't know, what exactly coenzyme Q10 does for the heart? Why is it so essential to our heart health? Sure. I I mean, first of all, our body makes it. And uh, which is a a clear indication. I mean, if the body makes it, that means it's got to be good for the body. It's like cholesterol. I mean, the body makes cholesterol as well. Uh, So uh, uh, when doctors were throwing cholesterol under the bus, I was questioning that. I mean, how could, you know, why would the body make it if it's so bad? But anyway, the interesting stuff about coenzyme Q10 was, was that not only does the body make it, but the, but it's an antioxidant in the body. And it actually drives the production of energy in the body. We call it adenosine triphosphate, ATP. In other words, coenzyme Q10 is a cofactor in the entire energy production of the body. And if I could say it this way, like during World War II, when German war criminals were using cyanide to kill people or even themselves for that matter, what cyanide did is it would shut off the Krebs cycle. In other words, it would shut down the production of coenzyme of ATP, adenosine triphosphate, the energy of life. And you need coenzyme Q10 as a cofactor to make that whole process work. So basically, I realized in my early career, because I started using coenzyme Q10 in 1982, and actually the first patient I used it on needed a heart transplant. She had a baby and had postpartum cardiomyopathy. But after the successful use in that one patient, I started to use it on a daily basis. And then in 1992, when that article came out, and after using it for 10 years, I realized how extraordinarily valuable coenzyme Q10 is in our health. And that's why I decided to really, you know, back off on statins and, and not use them in every patient with, with higher cholesterol and, and coronary artery disease. So it's, it's been a long, you know, transition for me. But w- when it comes to coenzyme Q10, that trumps the body because it does everything right. You know, it's an antioxidant. It's a membrane, uh, membrane stabilizer. I believe it delays the aging process. It has a favorable effect on platelets. So it does everything right. And when, you, when I was using drugs back then that inhibited its production, I realized that something's got to give. And that's why, again, I became that cardiologist in recovery. <laughs> I like that. So 
Only because people have a, a tendency to get hooked on what an expert such as yourself says. So Coenzyme Q10, I can picture everybody flooding out to their health shops and pharmacies to buy some. Is there anything we need to look out for? Is there a conversation that needs to be had with our own health practitioner around starting a supplement like CoQ10? Is there a type that we need to get that's better than another type? Or can you just, just so that people make good decisions out there and I'm very conscious of, of people who like putting into practice what they hear on a podcast and I want to make sure we equip people with the right information. So could you just help us with our sure. CoQ10 shopping, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, I'm a big believer in uh, the use of CoQ10 and in almost anybody over the age of 40 because around that time, the blood levels tend to drop precipitously. In other words, you know, the cells in the body make CoQ10. Uh, it's made uh, in large quantities in the liver and the kidney, and, and it's, a, it's vital for life. And uh, if you can enhance the production and take it as a supplement, I believe that, uh, you know, in my history of using coenzyme Q10 for like, oh gosh, over 30 years, I believe that it, it actually stimulates endogenous stem cell formation. And that's why patients with ravaged hearts from a massive heart attack who have, let's say, ejection fractions of 15 to 20%, if you put them on coenzyme Q10 and if, if they survive for, let's say, a decade, their ejection fraction improves considerably. And I used to think it was a chance event, but after seeing it over and over again, especially with time, I realized that you know stem cell renewal was a factor with coenzyme Q10. And then about eight years ago, uh, there was an article in the Scandinavian literature that talked about cardiomyocyte renewal. And <laughs> when I read that, I realized that coenzyme Q10 is vital in, in the uh, renewal of stem cells in the body. So that's why when I had patients who survived for years after massive heart attacks, I could never put it together. But I think there's an, a relationship between coenzyme Q10 and the renewal of stem cells in the heart. So with that little bit of knowledge, I thought that coenzyme Q10 was, was absolutely vital in turning a lot of these very, very sick people around. So when it, when it comes to coenzyme Q10, again, it's something that's made in the body. And like I said before, statin drugs can inhibit the production. And it's my belief that a lot of the side effects of statin drugs can be related to a low endogenous production of coenzyme Q10. Mm -hmm. So... When it, when it comes to Q10, I mean, this is a subject I can talk about forever because I've, I've done, you know, animal research in it. I've, I've studied CoQ10 in the mouse model. I studied it in the equine model. I reported on it in the human model. And there's, there's so many facets to coenzyme Q10. And if I can just say it in brevity, it's just so necessary for survival. And, and I feel that it's, it's one of the most important antioxidants when it comes to aging the body because... The, one of the mechanisms of coenzyme Q10 is membrane stabilization. And whenever you stabilize membranes, it's my belief that you delay the, the inexorable decline of aging because what aging does and a sequelae of aging is membrane disruption. So if you have something that can tighten membranes up, cellular membranes up, this is where coenzyme Q10 you know, shines as a really natural endogenous antioxidant in the body. 
Fantastic. I'm so glad I bought shares just before this interview <laughs> in CoQ10. Yeah, a lot of health food stores sell it. I mean, uh, you know, then it comes the question of reduced CoQ10 versus oxidized CoQ10, ubiquinone, ubiquinol. And, and I will tell you this, Alex, if, if your health food store has a high quality ubiquinol, which is sort of the oxidized form of CoQ10, that the body switches it to the reduced form. But I just find that find that a, a good quality ubiquinone is as is as good as a, a as a ubiquinol. So I, I've been using ubiquinone for years because again we use a high quality. It comes out of Tishcon uh, in the USA here, and, and I'm and I'm thrilled with the uh, mechanisms of action and the absorption. It's very important that coenzyme Q10 get absorbed because there's a lot of formulas out there that uh, have not been absorbed. And I've been blessed in the, the fact that I've tested so many patients with CoQ10 in their blood levels that over the, oh my gosh, I've been using, like I said before, I've been using CoQ10 for over 30 years, that I've tested thousands of blood levels. And I've been blessed to realize that, you know, a good high quality ubiquinone, I get really substantial blood levels. And when you get a good blood level of CoQ10, that's when the magic occurs. Ooh, I like magic. I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> <laughs> now, you mentioned that we make cholesterol, so how can it be bad for us? What exactly is cholesterol and what role does it play in the body then? If it's good for us, well, what's it doing? Why should we not be afraid? Yeah, another good question. See, the body makes cholesterol. And it makes it for a lot of reasons. I mean, it's a waxy substance that lubricates the skin. Uh, it makes our sex hormones. Uh, it makes bile salts. You know, we need it for neurotransmission in the brain. I mean, one of the reasons why you'll, you'll see the occasional or, or well, it's kind of rare total global amnesia where the patient forgets everything they've learned. Uh, from statin use. And that happened to uh, one of the famous astronauts in America, Dwayne, Dwayne Graveline, and he wrote a book about it. But like, there's so many side effects of, of statin drugs that I think are related to the killing of coenzyme Q10. Remember this, Alex, when you take a statin drug, it, it works on biochemical pathways and it kills cholesterol. But one of the biochemical pathways is the production of coenzyme Q10. So in the process, you're knocking out coenzyme Q10 as well. So a lot of the statin side effects can be attributed to lower blood levels of coenzyme Q10. So it, it's important that in any statin user, and I will say this, I mean, I don't like statins in women. I don't like them in children. However, in younger men, and, and you know, a young male to me is under the age of 70. So in younger men, I, I will use a statin, but I will always use it with a couple hundred milligrams of coenzyme Q10 at the same time. I believe when it comes to coronary disease, statins do a good thing, but it's not, it doesn't have to do with cholesterol lowering. I mean, that's what statins do. But remember, statins are pleomorphic. They do other things as well. And one of the other things they do is not only do they stabilize a membrane, but they create blood thinning at the same time. So it's my belief that statins work on a blood thinning level, on an antioxidant level, and, uh, and, and a membrane stabilization level. They happen to reduce cholesterol, but again, the body makes it. And again, we have to ask ourselves a question, why do we kill something that the body makes? It doesn't make sense. Mm. Now, if you do have inborn errors of metabolism, if you have what we call familial hypercholesterolemia, where you dealt a bad set of genes, and some of these people can have cholesterols of five, six, 700, well, then it makes sense to do intervention in these people. And, you know, fortunately in America, where we have like 
300 plus million people, um, we, you know, we we have a, a small percentage of people, maybe a million or two people with uh, this familial hypercholesterolemia. And, and, and those people need some sort of help because when cholesterol levels get too high, well, then I, I, I believe you're getting sticky blood, sludgy blood. And uh, it almost works in diabetics where you have very, very high blood sugars and the blood gets so thick that, you know, it, it can't do the oxygenization job in the peripheral tissues. And, and then you can, uh, you know, have situations where you have lack of blood supply. And in the heart, we call that coronary ischemia. So when it comes to statins in men, young men, I like them with a, with a, a CoQ10 chaser, so to speak. <laughs> Again, in women and children, I'm sort of out on them because I really don't think they uh, do a good job. And why would it be that it would not be good for women as opposed to men? What is it that's different about us? Um, obviously, there's a few things well, that's different about women and men. I do know that much from my old biology classes. but Well, first of all, when I was using statins on a routine basis years ago, I didn't see them helping women that much. And then there was a couple of articles in the literature that supported my belief. But if you look at a woman's anatomy, her coronary vessels are smaller than a, man, a man's vessels. And uh, if you look at the nature of knocking out coenzyme Q10, and coenzyme Q10 is, like I said, it's vital for membrane stabilization, ATP support, but it also has an effect on platelets. So, if, so in women with smaller coronary vessels, we don't want to get more sludgy blood in, in a situation where the anatomy of, of a woman is different. And uh, that's one of the reasons why women get a lot of what we call diastolic dysfunction of the heart, where they get more shortness of breath than men. It's sort of a complex entity. But in theory, in women with smaller coronary, coronary blood vessels, I've seen diastolic dysfunction where they get shortness of breath and the antidote is coenzyme Q10. And it's amazing. There's no drugs that treat diastolic dysfunction. And, and remember this, Alex, what diastolic dysfunction is, is that when the heart's filling with blood, it takes more energy to fill the heart with blood than to empty the blood, than to empty the heart. And what coenzyme Q10 does, it, it basically infuses the heart with energy. So the heart struggles less when it fills with blood and these patients feel a heck of a lot better. So when it comes to diastolic dysfunction, which women get more than men, it's my belief that a lot of it has to do to the smaller coronary blood vessels that women have because women have smaller hearts than men. It's just an anatomical difference between men and women. It's a complex subject. Very. But again, it's my belief that um, uh, because of the anatomy, these women get into trouble. And by the way, when, in the United States, I don't know what it's like in uh, Australia, but in the United States, women have surpassed heart disease more than men. Mm. And, you know, I, I think it's a sign of the times so when you have to be like a woman, act like a man and work like a dog. When they have that scenario, I think women are more vulnerable to heart disease than men. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book Heart Sense for Women back in the year 2000, uh, like 16 years ago. Because, it's a great book. Mm. Because I was seeing more women with men in the coronary care units. And it, 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 it just blew me away. I mean, why is this happening? And things have changed in the workplace. Oh, they sure have. And I mean, that leads me to stress, right? You're really passionate about the lifestyle piece around looking after our hearts and keeping them healthy. It's not just about popping pills and, and hoping for the best. Can you talk to us about what you've seen in your clinical practice and the role that stress plays? Sure. Uh, I actually wrote the book Heartbreak and Heart Disease in the 1980s. I, 
I was only 42 when I wrote that book, and it's, it's one of my best books. And basically, you know, we, we, we think that stress doesn't matter that much, but when it comes to the heart, uh, stress is a killer on the heart. I mean, when, when people are under constant stress, not only are hormonal changes occurring in the body, but we get electrolyte disturbances, we get thickening of the blood, and we get lower potassium. When adrenaline is discharged from the adrenals, this can cause you know, abnormal relationships. And um, that's why under very stressful situations, a sudden death and heart attack can occur. Mm. So one of the reasons why I wrote that book, Heartbreak and Heart Disease, was to alert the public that uh, emotional stress was more of a risk factor than let's say high cholesterol because everybody was buying in the high cholesterol but you know i have seen so many cardiac events in acute situations of stress and i'll never forget one of my colleagues he, he passed away from lymphoma dr robert elliott but he wrote the book is it worth dying for and he said two things that always impacted me he says don't sweat the small stuff and he says in reality it's all small stuff anyway and, and what he's basically saying is, you know, if you are overwhelmed in a situation, try to figure out in your, own, in your own mind that you better walk away from it or let it go or let the stress go because, you know, literally stress can kill you. And I believe him and he was absolutely right. Oh, wow. Okay. So stress. So do you espouse meditation? Is it, you know, because letting go of the stress in modern day is not altogether easy all the time. No, right. it, it's not easy. And that's the problem for women today. I mean, look, Alex, here's the bottom line. Crying is one of the best ways to alleviate emotional stress. I mean, when you cry or sob deeply from your, from your abdomen and you, you like free up the diaphragm, and you emit tears and you release endorphins, that's the most healing modality I know for the heart. And I know that from not being a cardiologist, not only being a cardiologist, but I was also a psychotherapist. I spent you know 10 years studying Gestalt and bioenergetic psychotherapy and got certified as a therapist. And when when and I'm using women as an example because now that women have gone into the workplace, their greatest protective mechanism was crying. And now if they shut that off, they become more like a man. And when you, when you become more like a man, now you're developing the heart disease characteristics. Because before the 19, let's say, 90s, uh, well, actually before 1996, men were getting heart disease more than women. But all of a sudden it switched. So you know, I believe that, again, when a woman becomes more like a man and shuts down her tears, you know, crying is one of the best ways of rescuing the heart. I mean, I mean, to me, it's just an, it's, it's, it's an absolute essential. So when we give ourselves permission to cry, we're softening the heart. And when we do that, we, we are literally releasing endorphins that have a, such a favorable impact on the heart. And we're discharging the de deleterious effects of noradrenaline and adrenaline, which can have a disastrous impact on the heart. So I'm a, I'm a big believer in laughing, crying, you know, doing yoga, meditation, you know, doing anything that works that can uh, turn our emotionality around. Mm, and, and crying and meditation and laughing, they're all things that actually bring you right into the now, right into the moment. And there's only one thing to be focused on and one thing to be doing. And that's part of our problem these days, isn't it? There's five billion things to be focused on and doing and that's what's causing the overwhelm. Exactly. You mm. know, but not living in the moment. 
And now look, if the moment is too painful and we live in it and we can cry, that's healing in itself. Mm. And I really like what you said about women, you know, over the decades becoming more and more like men. I mean, there should be absolutely nothing to be ashamed about and we should be getting guys to feel okay to cry as well, you know. It is it is such a great release and I haven't really ever thought about it in terms of heart health before, but, God, crying just feels so good. <laughs> oh, it does. And, and you yeah. know, it's amazing. Uh, when people laugh hard enough, what happens? They cry. Yes, <laughs> yes. So, so there's, a, there's a thin line between, you know, lots of laughter and crying. But the bottom line, Alex, is they're both vital for the survival of the heart. So whether you're – and look, you know, the average child laughs about 350 to 500 times a day. The average adult may laugh 10 to 15 times a day at the most. Mm. We have to become more childlike in our lives and, and laugh more and cry more. And if we can do that, we're really rescuing the energy of the heart. I love it. So I always like to put a bit of a, a team project out there to podcast listeners. And I think this week it could be to laugh and cry more, just to focus on those two emotions and, you know, get in touch with that. And if you feel yourself welling up, just let it go. Let it all come out. I, I like that. Good team project. You know, Alex, um, you're absolutely right in saying that because I did a workshop. I did a gestalt psychotherapy workshop for 44 people in Manchester Hospital. Oh, I think it was back in the mid-80s. And I published the results in the medical journal. And what I realized was that we had 44 people there and we were collecting urines over the two-day period. And the, the urine tells the truth. In other words, lots of stress came out in the workshop. But one thing I noticed about the women, they sort of networked with one another back then. They, they hugged one another. They cried with one another. They supported one another. The men in the workshop didn't cry. They were like lumps of clay. You ask them if anything's wrong and they, they would say, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then when I broke the codes to see who had heart disease and see who didn't, and we measured the stress hormones in the urine, we actually measured adrenaline and neuroadrenaline in the, in the urine because we were co collecting the urine. It was amazing. First of all, the women had no heart disease collectively, and this is years ago, but 80% of the men had heart disease and they had astronomical elevations of stress hormones in their urine. So the women who cried did not have stress hormones in the urine because they released it. But the mm. men who held on to themselves like lumps of clay were dying in their own adrenaline. And uh, they were developing – and they had heart disease when we broke the codes because, you know, some of the an coronary angiograms, stress, positive stress tests, things like that. So it was about 25 or 30 years ago. That's when I first realized that men who don't cry get heart disease. And I published that in Connecticut Medicine in the USA Literature. Oh, wow. So can I throw like a crazy theory out there? You know how when we, you know, you have a breakup, right? And I, I still remember vividly a couple of major breakups I had in my younger years. Yep. And we call that heartbreak, right? Exactly. And then how do we get over the breakup? We cry the pants off ourselves for days. Right. Until we actually feel like we can face the world again. And it, it is a process of healing. I've never really equated that. Do you think that there might be some legs to that theory? Oh, it's absolutely true. I mean, mm. as I said, being a heart specialist and a psychotherapist, crying releases the heartbreak that we all have. 
And, you know, we have heartbreak as children. We have heartbreak in relationships. There's so many aspects of heartbreak, but crying is the best modality we have to protect our hearts. And what's happened with modern society, particularly with women, and again, you know, we talked about this, but one of the reasons why women are getting so much heart disease is that they're shutting off their internal mechanism, which is crying. The other thing women are shutting off is their intuition. And, mm. uh, you know, Talk women- Talk me about that. How are you seeing that? Well, present? women have more intuition than men. I mean, like one of the things I've been trying to develop in myself is my own intuition, because intuition is a positive force. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of spirituality and, and intuition are sort of connected. But when women enter the workplace and they don't rely on their intuition, but they rely on facts, figures, et cetera, turning off your intuition is another ticket to heart disease. I really believe that. And women are more endowed with intuition because they feel more than men. They have a sixth sense more than men. Once a woman shuts that off and then shuts off her emotionality, uh, in other words, shuts off her feelings, oh, it's disastrous. I remember one workshop I was doing, Alex, years ago. I had a 28-year-old woman in the workshop who had uterine cancer. In other words, she needed a total hysterectomy for cancer. She was only 28 years old. And what I realized and what she realized was she was a vice president of a bank and she was working with seven other males who were sort of, you know, all climbing the ladder. And she shut off her, her tears, she shut off her intuition, she shut off her femininity, and guess what? She castrated herself with cancer and literally had the uterus taken out because of cancer. And when she realized that, what she had done, she cried and cried and cried. And I'll never forget it because um, she, was an, she was an unbelievable patient and a messenger where she absolutely got that the reason why she got uterine cancer was because she became more like a man in the workplace. Wow. Only 28 years old had, had the uterus removed because of cancer. Gosh. And, you know, I mean, that whole connection between disease and emotions and or lack of emotion and is just it's a whole nother topic isn't it we could go on and on into oh yes i mean that's why i became a psychotherapist but you know it's important for our listeners to realize that see patients for doctors they're really messengers and what really makes a good doctor out there is that he sees a patient as a messenger and those patients teach the doctor about life, about real events. And, and, and basically, if the doctor can assimilate this information, they become, <coughs> excuse me, better doctors. So I, I've been blessed with a lot of those events in my life where you use these patient situations, you learn from it, and then you can help other people. And that's what you know becoming a doctor is all about. It's sharing what you've learned from previous experiences in the quest of, of helping others. Isn't that beautiful? And I think key as well, which you've shown, is also sharing when it's not been right and and continually improving and evolving and not being afraid to move forward in a different direction, so to speak. Sometimes we have Mm. to move in a different direction. Yeah. The greatest thing about medicine is if, if something's not working, we need to shift gears. And the problem with a lot of doctors is their rigidity. In other words, they... They believe what they were taught in medical school or in their training, and that they stay rigid. And I, I should say this about doctors. A rigid doctor 
that's their Achilles heel, rigidity. So good doctors mm. need to sort of, you know, get out of the box a little bit, open up their eyes and see their patients as messengers. And when something works in one patient that they thought was unusual, they need to try it in another patient. <laughs> and that's, mm. that's what medicine is all about. Absolutely. And so when someone goes to their doctor and they want to have a confident discussion, you know, let's just say, let's just say it's a woman. I mean, a lot of female listeners and let's just say she presents with elevated cholesterol because these are the, the things that we get tested. How would you suggest that woman empower herself? Um, I love your book, The Great Cholesterol Myth. Would it be as simple as reading and talking to someone else if she didn't feel she or he didn't feel that that conversation was going in an open-minded, uh, let's explore various options direction as opposed to the no, you have to take these pills, this is the only answer. How how would you suggest people sort of start to feel more empowered to have conversations with their doctors? Yeah, I, I've seen that scenario many times. When, when I was working as a cardiologist on a day-to-day basis, I would see young women in their 30s who came to see me as a second opinion. And this is before I wrote The Great Cholesterol Myth. And they would be in their 30s, they'd have high cholesterol and cardiologists. And I'll tell you, I live in, in, you know, in the USA and Connecticut. And and some of these women went to Yale and, you know, these Ivy League schools and met some good, outstanding cardiologists. And they were put on statin drugs in their, in their early 30s. And um, I'll never forget this, Alex, but like they would come to me and see me as a second opinion. And I would tell them that it's my opinion that they don't need a statin drug. And I gave them all these reasons. And you wouldn't believe how many women burst into tears in my office. In, in other words, they just felt they were seen for the first time. And uh, they went off their statin drugs. And, and, and the problem is that there's a lot of belief out there in the medical establishment that cholesterol is the enemy and that you mm-hmm. have to kill cholesterol. And I believe that there's nothing farther from the truth. I mean, I mean, cholesterol is more of your friend as opposed to your foe. I mean, if you really want to get down to brass tacks, what the foe is or what the enemy is is sugar. I mean, sugar causes enormous oxidative stress in the body. It ages the membranes. It ages our cells. You know, we've become a society of sugar. And, you know, the average American, I don't know about the average Australian, but the average American takes in about 160 pounds of sugar a year. And it causes, you know, excessive aging of of cellular membranes. And uh, I I would always tell my patients to cut back on sugar and don't worry about cholesterol. You know, unless I was dealing with a familial hypercholesterolemia where I had cholesterols of four, five, six hundred. But the bell-shaped curve on cholesterol, you know, if you were less than three hundred and greater than one fifty or one or one twenty to one to let's say two eighty, I was very happy with those numbers. I I, I like that bell-shaped curve. I mean, I was and I, I can't tell you how many people I saw with cholesterols of 180, 190, 200 who were being treated with statin drugs. And I, I always felt it was a travesty. Right. And for anyone who reads cholesterol differently, I know we do in Australia, I'll pop those conversions in the show notes for anyone who wanted to to um, know what those uh, numbers Stephen right. just mentioned are. So cholesterol is not the enemy per se. If we're unhappy with the conversation we've had with one doctor, 
we should ask for a second opinion and actively seek out someone where we feel like we're being heard. I really like that tip. Even if statins, for, you know, especially for men, as you mentioned, maybe end up being something that you end up taking, to feel like you're heard and to feel like you're working with a partner in your practitioner as opposed to just being told what to do and feeling completely disempowered is key when it comes to matters of the heart. Yeah. Oh, okay. So well. <laughs> see, see, what patients really want, Alex, is they want to be seen. They just want to be understood. And when a doctor oh, sees agree. the patient in their struggle, look, we all have struggles in life. And that's all patients want is to be seen. And once they're seen, miracles happen. That's, what that's exactly right. Essence of the doctor patient relationship. Yeah. And speaking of uh, crying in a practitioner's office, I'll never forget after probably around 40 to 50 rounds of antibiotics for strep throat, tonsillitis as we call it here, over and over and over again. And the drugs got stronger and stronger and stronger and nothing changed. And it's like that Einstein quote, you know, you do the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. That's insanity. And that certainly was the case for me. And I ended up going to see a naturopath. And 12, 13 years ago, that was quite a hippie, woo-woo thing to go and seek out a naturopathic physician. And she just asked me questions for 40 minutes, nonstop, everything about me, everything I'd ever done, every lifestyle choice I'd ever made, the way I ate, the way I worked, what stress was playing as a role in my life. And I just, I broke down. I couldn't believe this woman wanted to know so much about me before helping me. It was it was a real shift for me to, to finally have that sense of being heard and seen and listened to and empowered to make better health choices for myself with more knowledge that she that she gave me it's it's a it's a totally different thing and i think we really all deserve that and i always like to say to people you know you might not even go to a naturopath or a cardiologist or a nutritionist or uh, any uh, pediatrician, whoever it might be, you might not like the first one you go to. Audition these people. These people are your partners in health. You know, you need to enjoy them. You need to feel like you're you're working with someone who respects you as well. And I think we overlook that. We just assume if someone's got that tag on their office door, then that's the person you got to see. But we've all got different people that suit us, right? Right. Oh, you said that so beautifully. I mean, I got... I got the angelic chill when you were talking about that. And which, oh, yay. I love gooseies. <laughs> which, which speaks <laughs> at it. it. It's truthful. I'll tell you another quick story. My son, Drew Sinatra, uh, became a naturopath. Oh, right. This is amazing. Uh, when he was in, uh, let's see, he was in a senior in high school, and that's when computers were, you know, coming into realm. And I, I asked him to come to my hospital to help me set up a PowerPoint presentation years ago. And I had about 75 doctors in the audience. And, you know, a child that's around 17 or 18, when the lecture was over, he says, Dad, I don't want to become a doctor. I go, why? He goes, those doctors were sad. They were angry. They didn't really want to be there. You know, he felt their, their energy. I said, you're absolutely right. You know, um, one of the reasons why they come is because to, to the noonday lecture is because we, we would feed them. You know, we would, we'd give them, <laughs> <laughs> we, would, <laughs> we would provide lunch. But, you know, he saw the truth and I said, Drew, don't become a doctor, you know, maybe consider naturopathic medicine or acupuncture or stuff like that. So he applied to Bastier a few years later and he got in and uh, he's a naturopath now. 
And he loves Oh, how great. And he loves You guys are a force to be reckoned with. Well, you know, and, and now he's, you know, he's on my newsletter team and stuff like that. And uh, he teaches me stuff. He does. He's, he's been out of Bastyr about 10 years. And uh, it's amazing. He, he comes up with some really good stuff. So it's, it's great having a son that's uh, in alternative medicine like that. How fantastic. Now, I, I want to ask you just one quick question on food before we wrap this interview up. What, you know, saturated fats, it's probably another half hour conversation, but do saturated fats cause elevated cholesterol? Can we just go straight there? Sure. I mean, I mean, yeah, yeah. The, the, the short answer is yes, they do. Uh, mm-hmm. Saturated fats uh, are, are broken down and they do raise cholesterol. And that's why the old, you know, what, what, I, what I would call the antiquity you know, message of antiquity was that yes. it made sense. Well, if you eat eggs and eggs are cholesterol and uh, or you eat saturated fats uh, in, in meats and stuff like that, that it's turned into cholesterol in the body and that's a taboo. And that was the old thinking. However, what the modern thinking is, is that sure, uh, saturated fats like coconut oil, for example, I'll use that as an example, you know, can create more cholesterol. Organic butter can create more cholesterol. And it's true. However, when you take in these saturated fats, they tend to uh, create more of what we call a fluffy pattern of cholesterol, not what we call a small, dense particle B pattern. But they make sort of a more threatening, inflammatory type of cholesterol, more fluffier, more conducive to the body. Olive oil is a great example. Olive oil contains mostly monounsaturated fat, but it does contain a little saturated fat. And olive oil takes like a small particle B that that we can measure in the laboratory, and it makes it fluffier into a particle A, which is much less invasive on the body. And remember, when cholesterol becomes oxidized, that's when it becomes angry. And uh, when it becomes angry, that's when it can create more inflammation in the blood vessels. So saturated fat makes small density particles LDL. fluffy and light. Yeah, so the LDL, it, it, it shifts that to being HDL. Is that right? No, no, not HDL. It makes the small particle LDL less invasive. Less invasive. Yes. Okay, cool. Great. Less Thank invasive you. if it becomes oxidized. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it becomes less invasive, who cares? I mean, yeah. So, so we used to think saturated fats because they turned into cholesterol would be, was bad for the body. However, it changes the framework of cholesterol, and that's why coconut oil, you know, organic butters uh, are good for you. Even a palm oil. I mean, years ago we used to think palm oil was ho- horrific for you, but now it's fine. I mean, mm. coconut. As long as it's sustainable, I will add. Yeah, canola oil is not good for you. I mean, canola oil can cause inflammation, but but coconut oil is is fine. And you know, if people want to cook with coconut oil, coconut oil, I see no problem with that, despite the fact that it's a saturated fat, and saturated fats turn into the cholesterol. So, I'm a I'm a big believer in in healthy fats because remember, healthy fats do not elicit an insulin response. And we know that higher sugar and higher carbohydrates elicit an insulin response. And insulin is the most endothelial unfriendly hormone around. So insulin is pro-inflammatory. So if you have a diet that has more fat in it and higher protein, less sugar and less carbohydrate, 
you're getting less inflammation in the body and that's the key okay that's a really great thing to end on thank you so much for your time today chatting all things heart health i'm gonna have to get you back on the show i think to to talk about your latest book health revelations from heaven and earth because uh, there's a whole bunch we can talk about there thank you so much dr sinatra it's been a revelatory well thank you it's been a lot of fun thank you Thank you so much for joining me for today's show. Check out the show notes at lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast. And if you wanted to maybe share a quote and something that really jumped out for you, you can find us on Instagram at lowtoxlife or simply hashtag lowtoxlife across social media. I absolutely love bringing you the show. Thank you for any of the star ratings or one-line reviews that you guys have left. It helps me know what you've been loving and what you'd love to see more of. I'll see you next week. Jack Rabbit FM. For your ears. Who is that? Hi, Puck.